Welcome to DLA Piper's At the Intersection of Science and Law podcast. In this episode, DLA Piper's Jim Greenwood and Jeff Levitt are joined by Peter Kolchinski, founding partner and portfolio manager at RA Capital, to discuss the importance of and complications in balancing biopharmaceutical innovation, industry regulations, and prescription drug availability. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Jim Greenwood, and I am the co-chair of the Life Sciences Policy and Regulatory Group at the DLA Piper Law Firm. By way of further introduction, prior to coming to the firm about a year and a half ago, I served as the president and CEO of BIO, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, the trade association for about a thousand biopharmaceutical companies. And prior to that, I served in Congress for 12 years. And prior to that, I served in the Pennsylvania legislature for 12 years. I'm happy to have two brilliant guests with me today, and I'm going to have them introduce themselves. The first is Jeff Levitt, and Jeff co-chairs our Life Science Policy and Regulatory Group at DLA. Jeff. Thanks, Jim, and good morning. Yes, as Jim said, I am a counsel at DLA Piper and co-chair the Life Sciences Policy and Regulatory Group with Jim and also co-chair the FDA regulatory practice on the legal side. I joined the firm a little under a year ago from Pfizer, where I was the head of global regulatory law for a number of years and supported the company's operations globally in terms of interactions with regulatory agencies such as the FDA and its counterparts around the world. Okay. And Peter Kolchinski is a unique character in that he is a highly successful investor in biopharmaceutical companies, but he also has an avid interest in the public policy that surrounds the whole enterprise. And Peter, introduce yourself. Hi, thanks, Jim. Indeed, it's so much easier to be an investor if you just ignore public policy and imagine that nothing scary is going to emerge from Washington. But when you look, it's hard to look away. I'm a scientist by training and I've spent my entire career as a biotech investor, really focused on newer technologies, development stage companies that are working on solving all the problems we haven't solved yet. My firm, RA Capital, has been around for about 20 years. We have over 120 people at the firm, a lot of scientists meeting with thousands of companies every year. Thank you. Well, let me set the stage a little bit for our discussion. We stand today on the threshold of almost unimaginable progress in defeating diseases that have ravaged humans for literally thousands of years. Now, new techniques using gene therapy, cell therapy, mRNA, witness the COVID vaccines, and gene editing, promise to allow us to battle diseases not at the level of symptoms, but at their genetic and cellular sources. And while the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, has long been a world-leading source of academic research, it is the private biopharmaceutical sector that supplies the lion's share of the financial investment and takes all of the risk. As a result, the United States leads the world in biopharmaceutical innovation. We invent more medicines here than the rest of the world combined. Unfortunately, though, for reasons we are about to discuss, too many patients can't afford these drugs. And there's a moral imperative involved here. And that is that no one should ever have to do without the medicines that he or she needs because they cannot afford what's required to come from their pocket. And we're going to get into that in a moment. 
Members of Congress understandably want to ensure that their constituents can afford the prescriptions they need, but too often the policies they advance will have the opposite effect and threaten to undermine this miraculous medical progress. So, Peter, as I mentioned, you're at the forefront of providing the funds that emerging innovative biotech companies need to develop new drugs. Why is it that too many Americans can't afford the drugs that these companies produce? Are they just priced too high? So I think that the problem lies with insurance design. The total amount that America spends each year on branded medicines is less than 1.4% of GDP at this point. What I should say is if you look at what it is that makes them supposedly high priced, it's about a 1% GDP differential. If you wanted to make 1% GDP affordable to all Americans through proper insurance, you could. It would be a modest expense and it would bring a lot of peace of mind to people to know that they will have the medicines they need when they need them. Unfortunately, a lot of Americans, media, Congress, conflate what drugs cost to patients, which is a function of insurance, with the prices that drug companies themselves charge. And we got to deconvolute that, get to the root of the affordability problem. We can have separate discussions about drug prices themselves, but unlike anything else in healthcare, drugs actually, for the most part, go generic. They're expensive only temporarily. Nothing else in healthcare goes generic. Hospitals don't go generic. So I've been doing a lot of work, a lot of writing over the years and supporting no profit, no patient left behind, which tries to make that case that whenever we invent a medicine that keeps people out of hospitals, that saves money on hospitals. And eventually when the drug goes generic, you're not paying for either hospitals or for the medicine. You're truly saving money for the long run. That's not an easy message to get, but we're making progress and gradually winning people over to the idea that we ought to be incentivizing new medicines to come to market with the promise of a temporary branded period where they can generate a good return. And in that way, reduce what we spend on healthcare services, hospitals, ER visits, et cetera, for the long run. When you talk about insurance design, it also applies, of course, to our Medicare program, the largest payer of medicines in the world. And the design flaw, both in commercial insurance and in the Medicare program, is what patients have to pay out of pocket. They're deductible. And deductibles, in my mind, make sense in healthcare coverage if you have a decision that you could make where efficiency is at stake. So for instance, I always use the case, I twist my ankle, I need an x-ray, I could call an ambulance to take me to the emergency room, which might cost $2,000, or I can ask my neighbor to take me to an urgent care center, it might cost $200. So if I have a $3,000 deductible, it's wise for the insurer to incentivize me to the less costly option. But when it comes to prescription drugs, it's an entirely different matter. We don't have a choice. We're sick. Our physician prescribes medicine and we need it. So making patients pay a deductible on a prescription drug that they may not be able to afford is really, I think, a terrible policy. And all it does is it causes people to not take their medicine, to not adhere to the prescription and get sicker and cost the health system more money. What's really disappointing, though, is that some people will rebut that, Jim, by saying, well, what if you don't need that medicine? So your doctor prescribed the medicine to you. Odds are you didn't go to medical school. And you're supposed to know that, in fact, your doctor's wrong and that you don't need that medicine. I would hope that all of America reexamines exactly why we even have out-of-pocket costs for things like medicines. 
Well, agreed. And we all have heard a lot about the Build Back Better bill that is now dead in the Senate. But it's also that the Democrats are going to try to take pieces of that bill and pass them. That includes some provisions that go to drug pricing. The good news is that included in there is a cap on out-of-pocket expenses for the Medicare Part D program of $2,000 per year, which is still high, but it's better than the unlimited expenses they now face. But it also allows the government to negotiate prices for some drugs, and it limits how much drug companies can raise their prices in a given year. Now, these are very popular policies, but what's wrong with them? Well, I would say that the question really can come down to whether investors believe that there will be a reward for taking tremendous risks on lengthy and expensive drug development. We reserve the right to just dictate price to companies shortly after they launch drugs. But HR3 went away and it was replaced with Build Back Better. And what Build Back Better said was, well, sometime after a drug launches, in the case of small molecules, nine years, in the case of biologic drugs, 13 years, if we don't see that competition has entered the market, generic or biosimilar competition, then we can knock down the price of those drugs and essentially force them down the price curve the way that, in theory, competition would if there were some. And that's less threatening to innovation because investors can now say, all right, so I will be allowed some period of time, nine years for small molecules, 13 years for biologics. And in theory, that could allow the investment math to work. The trouble is that while 13 years for biologics is about as long, it's only a little bit shorter than what investors typically have expected, how long a drug stays branded before competition sets in, nine years for small molecules is way too short. It would be like telling the real estate sector that mortgages cannot be more than nine years long. You could have a nine-year mortgage, but it just means that mortgage premiums are going to be higher than if it were a 15 or 30-year mortgage. So it's going to force companies that are trying to inspire investors to fund their small molecule programs to convince those investors that the market will bear even higher prices for those small molecules, albeit for a shorter period of time. So shortening the mortgage period, therefore forcing the investment math to account for higher prices, also means that investors are going to be more fearful that those high prices will be rejected. So you're going to get lower volumes at higher prices for shorter periods of time. So that really does end up discouraging investments on molecule drugs. So before BBB was sidelined, no patient left behind is rallying industry to speak up and convey how important it is that small molecule drugs not be treated as a special case with shorter mortgage periods, that there be parity really in how long all drugs can expect to have a reward. 13, 14 years, something like that is close enough to what we've long had that it probably would not be terribly disruptive. Now, one other thing that DVD included as did HR3 was price increase caps. And there it's playing around with the idea that, well, you shouldn't be able to take any price increases, at least not more than inflation, once you've launched your drug. The reality is we've long lived now in a period where net drug prices are not going up. So saying that you have to cap drug prices, it's not terribly disruptive on the surface. But if you think about cases where you're launching a drug and you're not sure exactly how many patients insurance will allow to be treated, you think there are 100,000 patients that ought to be treated with your medicine. All the doctors say they would like to treat so and so many patients. You add up the math, it's 100,000. 
And in the end, you might only get 50,000 patients. So if you price your medicine thinking you're going to get 100,000 in order to generate an adequate return, you might need to increase your price just to stay profitable. And this has happened before. I've written an article about a small company that had to increase the price of its drug for treating patients with a uh, condition associated with HIV. They had to increase the price in order to then make room to offer those same insurance plans rebates. So sometimes price changes after you launch are just part of price discovery, figuring out what is a sustainable price for your company. And if you just have a law that says you're not allowed to change your price once you launch it, I worry that companies are going to have to simply launch at the highest possible price, like the rack rate on the back of a hotel room, which generally nobody pays, but then discount from there. Well, what happens when we launch at high list prices and offer huge rebates? We get penalized for the high list prices and nobody pays attention to the rebates. So it's just going to drive worse and worse optics for the drug industry as it attempts to preserve the viability of its business model. But we can live with it. It's the law of unintended consequences. Indeed. It results from members of Congress who are spending more time listening to the pollsters and not enough time listening to those of us who are in the business and understand it. Let me turn to Jeff, because a lot of this is driven by a narrative that drug prices are skyrocketing. Every time I hear someone in Congress talk about this, we got to do something about skyrocketing drug prices. But drug prices haven't been skyrocketing. Isn't that right, Jeff? That's absolutely right, Jim. To take a step back here, if you look at the system we have for innovator and generic drugs in the United States, which has been in place now for almost 40 years, it actually works really well. 90% of all prescriptions filled in the U.S. are filled with generic drugs. And that's because we have a system under the Hatch-Waxman amendments that allows generic drugs to come to market in a timely fashion, that allows them to, if they want to challenge a patent or if the exclusivity is expired, to come to market in a reasonable time period that allows the innovator time to recover the costs of the R&D investment and make a reasonable profit. And then also to incentivize further innovation and development because at some point the generic is coming for your molecule. So you're going to be incentivized to look for new areas to invest and look for new developments in innovation for medicines, for patients. Policies such as the ones that Congress is considering now would undermine incentives for developing new medicines. And there's still tremendous unmet medical need in the world and in this country, in neuroscience, Alzheimer's and cancer and many other areas. So to put policies in place, as Peter was saying, that would shorten the period during which you can recoup your investment to a point where it's no longer attractive for investors is extremely counterproductive. I just wanted to point something out that the U.S. Congressional Budget Office just released a report. And in it, they said the average net price of drugs in both Medicare and Medicaid has decreased from 2008 to 2019. The net price decline of $7 per prescription in Medicare and a net price decline of $25 in Medicaid. And this reduction is due to a greater use of generics and increasing rebates. So it is not the case at all that the net prices are going up. In fact, they've been going down 
for some time now. But Jeff, maybe you can explain the rebate issue a little bit, because that's always confusing to people. They see the list prices going up, and they just assume that that's what the insurers and the patients are paying. Exactly, Jim. And it's a game that's played by some observers and some participants where you take some poster child that such and such company increased its list price by this much and look how terrible this is. And by the way, look what patients in other countries are paying for this and why is this such an outrage of these high prices, completely ignoring the fact that the real issue here is the net price, the price that's coming back to the manufacturer, which of course is the price charged minus all of the rebates and other charges that are put in place before the drug gets to the consumer. And those have been going up. I recently read that for the first time we've crossed the line and the net price is now, net price meaning what goes back to the manufacturer, is less than 50% of the list price. So what's happening here is that more than half of the pharmaceutical dollar is being taken out in the distribution chain with rebates and other charges that are imposed before it gets to the pharmacy counter. And that's the real problem. That is clearly what should be addressed in terms of -of out-of-pocket costs, as we were saying earlier, and cost to the consumer. And maybe, Jeff, you could elaborate a little bit on the source of these rebates, the PBM process, and how PBMs have evolved over time from a tool that was meant to give payers the best price they could get to instead demanding the highest rebate the PBMs can extract. Exactly, Jim. The pharmacy benefit management concept, which, as you said, was originally intended as a means of concentrating purchasing and negotiating best prices and facilitating the market has now become highly concentrated. I think there's three or four pharmacy benefit management organizations, PBMs, that control the vast majority of the market in the United States. So you can imagine the amount of market power that these organizations have and unfortunately appear to have used it in order to increase the share of the pharmaceutical dollar that goes to them frankly, at the expense of both of the other ends of the spectrum, which is the pharmaceutical companies that do the innovating and the manufacturing and developing, and then at the other end, the consumer. And that's clearly an issue that needs to be addressed. I think it's very tempting and attractive to talk about the drug companies this and drug prices that. But if you really understand what's going on in the system, then you can actually target solutions that will help the price issue, help the out-of-pocket cost issue without doing such damage to the innovation machine that we all depend on as patients. And not just consumers, though. I thought you were going to use a different word, Jeff. Patients. Patients, absolutely. Those rebates are money that's not going to the drug developers. Fine. So it's not going there. But it's coming out of the patient's pockets. It's a harsh reality. And I would add to that that pharmaceutical spend is about 15% of the total healthcare dollar in the United States. And arguably, I think it is the most cost-effective part of that spend. It is also the most transparent part of that spend because everybody sees the prices, at least the list prices, which may be misleading, as we've been saying. But do you actually see the prices for other components of the healthcare system only when you get the bill from the hospital, right? But that's not a politically palatable or attractive thing to talk about. So the debate in many ways is so misdirected 
I would say, by focusing on these list prices that the drug companies are supposedly charging. So, Peter, you mentioned patients a number of times. And a little while in the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned No Patient Left Behind. Maybe just tell us a little bit about the organization that you founded. Sure. I wrote a book over several years that came out at the beginning of 2020, just before COVID, called The Great American Drug Deal. And in it, I talked about what I saw as the biotech social contract, which I defined simply as the drug industry will make drugs that go generic without undue delay. And in turn, society will make all those medicines affordable to patients through proper insurance, which means low out-of-pocket costs. I believe that everything that we see as being wrong with healthcare and the drug industry can be explained by looking at how we've deviated from that social contract. Insurance plans do not have low out-of-pockets. They have high out-of-pockets. If we were to lower the out-of-pockets and extend insurance to all Americans, then the insurance side of the social contract will be fixed and honored. And if indeed all drugs were to go generic without undue delay, then the biopharma industry will be doing its job, will be upholding its end of the biotech social contract. To the extent that some drugs have not gone generic due to patent gaming or due to their sheer complexity so that nobody can even copy the drug, that turns what should be a mortgage into an eternal rent stream. And it's not that we're spending too much on a drug. It's that we're spending what was, I would argue, a reasonable price to reward innovation, but spending it for too long. You thought you were signing up for a 15-year mortgage, and at the end of it, turns out you just keep paying and paying the same amount. And you're like, oh my God, all this time I wasn't investing in order to own my own home, in order to own this public good that a generic medicine represents. I've been paying rent for it, just like what I pay for a hospital that never goes generic. So if our industry could support regulations that fix that market failure, when our medicines don't go generic, well, do delay, if we accepted that, yes, there should be some price controls, essentially, that knock those prices down to a level as if they'd gone generic. But if in exchange, we also win low out-of-pocket costs for patients, I believe that we will have a far more harmonious healthcare system and innovation system in the U.S. with spillover to the rest of the world. Now, it's one thing to write a book. Writing a book is just a ticket to get in the door to then work really hard to make your ideas come true. So No Patient Left Behind was the nonprofit that I helped launch in order to advocate for these basic principles. And if you go to that website, nopatientleftbehind.org, you'll see a lot of teaching materials that explain a lot of the, but what about Europe? They pay less for drugs. Can't the U.S. pay less for drugs? We explain that as Europe's like a bad roommate. They're not paying their share of the mortgage. And as much as you might like to pay as little as them, if you don't pay the mortgage, you all move out. So the U.S. is holding up innovation right now. They're supporting more and more of it as Europe tries to pay less and less. But that doesn't mean that the U.S. can pay less if it still wants to get that innovation. We have to find a way to inspire Europe to be a better roommate. Unfortunately, stuff like international reference pricing, where you just dictate to them that you have to pay the same as us and we're going to pay as little as you, means that drug companies would then tell Europe, well, I'm not going to charge less than the U.S., so I guess I have to charge you the U.S. price. And it means that those countries might just say, well, then I'm moving out and I'm not paying anything at all. So if you look at it through that framework, you would realize that it's better to have Europe pay something towards the mortgage than nothing. These are the kinds of analogies that we've been putting on the No Patient Left Behind website 
in order to steadily chip away at the misunderstandings that the public media and Congress have about the drug industry. We're funding research to try to give the world a more holistic view of the ecosystem. So we've got this cool project that's underway where we integrate the entire industry into a single PNL statement in order to show what drives this industry. Why do we need to do that? Well, because when Congress decides that it's going to judge our industry by the profitability of a few pharmas, that's basically like saying, well, all artists are rich because look, Beyonce makes a lot of money. It's like, no, for the most part, being an artist is not very lucrative. And you have to show people the totality of an ecosystem to show that there's a ton of money that's being invested in these smaller companies. And their hope in many cases is that they get chosen as a winner by those big farmers. They get acquired for a large amount of money. And that money then flows back into the ecosystem and drives the growth of new small companies that represent the seeds of the next decade's medicines. So we want to show the world this holistic ecosystem model. Mm -hmm. We've attracted hundreds of supporters from the drug industry who are signing up, basically saying, yes, I agree. Our medicines should go generic without undue delay. Yeah, we would agree to price regulations that knock down the prices of our biologics if they are uncopyable and cannot be subject to by a similar competition. What we have here are a bunch of people that are signing up for a biotech social contract where they understand that they have a duty to society, where profit is meant to serve a purpose, to incentivize innovation. People in this industry want to hustle to keep coming up with new solutions, and they want patients to be able to afford them. So No Patient Left Behind is passionately arguing for lower out-of-pocket costs, supporting a new organization called the Loop Coalition, L-O-O-P, Lower Out-of-Pocket Costs, and really pounding the table that our system can be fixed with modest reforms that incentivize innovation and make it affordable to patients. And we're gradually seeing the results of those efforts, like the Scott Peters bill very much reflected a lot of the values that we've been promoting. We have some time to continue to build awareness in Congress and with the general public of what kinds of reforms really would serve the public interest in the long run. It's really grassroots. We're trying to teach through sublimations, trying to get to people, even at a high school level, so that they get what's happening to them at the pharmacy. So I would urge everybody to check out No Patient Left Behind. If you're passionate about this cause, please support the organization. I think what I'd want to add to Peter's terrific overview of his organization and the ideas is that these international price comparisons are so misleading because what they leave out is you look at whatever price you want to pick. First of all, as we've been discussing, it's very hard to know what the actual price is because of the list price, net price differences in the U.S. But even if you pick out, say, this drug costs 50% less in such and such European country or Canada or wherever, completely ignoring the fact that we have fundamentally different healthcare systems and payment models from these countries. So to pick out one aspect, which is the drug price, and say, oh, look at this, without looking at the totality of the fact that most other industrialized countries have government-run healthcare systems. So, of course, prices appear to be lower. And to take one piece of the U.S. system, which is the pharmaceutical piece, and essentially put price controls on it without addressing the other 85% 
of the healthcare dollar is precisely backwards. You're taking the most cost-effective and the most transparent part of the whole healthcare system and saying, oh, because it looks like you have high prices, we're going to suddenly put price controls and regulate your prices. What I want to conclude with is a couple of things. The first is that I think your book and your organization have proven that we can have it both ways. We can lead the world in innovation and we can make drugs available and affordable to people at a price they can afford. And it's just a question of convincing members of Congress that can be done. I mentioned what I called a moral imperative in the beginning, and that is that no patient should ever do without the medicine that they need because they can't afford what's required to come from their pocket. The second moral imperative, I think, is that no public policy should ever be adopted if it disincentivizes the investment in this fabulous industry that's creating so much hope for patients. There's no law of nature that says we can't ultimately defeat every disease there is. But there are laws of man that can be enacted that prevent us from doing that. So we'll continue to, through your organization and through the work that Jeff and I do, to try to get that message to members of Congress. And maybe we can come out of this in a good place. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Jeff. And to be continued. Peter, thank you so much. It's been a terrific discussion appreciate all of these great thoughts and lots more to come. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to DLA Pipers at the Intersection of Science and Law podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the series so you can receive notifications about new episodes. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper, LLP US. The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Daily Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast.